Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. What is up? Welcome to the Los Angeles Dodgers podcast on the Believe Network. I'm J.P. Hornstra with the Southern California News Group. Thanks for coming back after this podcast went on a brief but necessary hiatus. To call the last two weeks technical difficulties would be asking the word difficult to do more work than it was designed to do. I will spare you the gory details. We're here now, you and I. That's all that matters. Sean Green will be coming on in a minute talking about the Dodgers trade deadline activity and the death of Vince Scully last Tuesday at age 94. If you haven't had a chance yet, please visit dailynews.com or ocregister.com where I tried to summarize my thoughts about what made Vin so special. The piece is titled, Any Appreciation of Vin Scully Must Include a Moment of Silence. And I'd like to think it would be worth your time to read if you have even five minutes. There is one anecdote that I didn't touch on with Sean because it's a bit morbid, but I wanted to share it because it is appropriate to the occasion of Vin Scully's death. Once upon a time, I sat down across from Vin in the media dining room at Dodger Stadium. And we got to talking and we were talking about Twitter and I helped explain to him what Twitter is. It so happens that I know the exact date that this exchange took place. It was May 13th, 2012. And the only reason I know that is because Molly Knight, who worked for ESPN at the time, was sitting right next to me. She was explaining trending topics, and she tweeted about this, ironically, uh, on the same day it happened. So on May 13th, 2012, I know for a fact that I was sitting across from Vin, talking about Twitter, and I know I told him this. Obituaries are particularly popular because it is often the first place a person will learn that a famous person died. Ten years later, I will let you guess how I learned that Vin Scully had passed away. Uh, One more thing that is relevant to this episode but I did not get into with Sean is the prospect package that the Washington Nationals were asking the Dodgers for in exchange for Juan Soto. Uh, I haven't seen this reported elsewhere, but according to my sources, it was a package of six or seven prospects. The headliners were Diego Cartaya and Bobby Miller, who are respectively the top position player and the top pitcher in the Dodgers system. And beyond that, I've heard there were a few different versions of how the trade might have been construed. One person who saw at least one version of this trade said that the Nationals wanted another two or three of the Dodgers' top five prospects. So think about guys like Ryan Pepio, Gavin Stone, Miguel Vargas, Andy Pajes, Michael Bush, maybe two or three out of that group, plus, plus, Another two or three wildcard prospects, guys who were not as highly ranked as the aforementioned group, but guys the Nationals liked for one reason or another. Now again, that's an approximation of one version of a trade that was never consummated. 
Um, so don't take that to the bank. But I think the headline here is that it's not as if the Dodgers didn't engage. Uh, they were engaged on Juan Soto. They wound up the runners up. And given how the series against the Padres went over the weekend, maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Uh, last note before I bring Sean on, we recorded before the Dodgers swept the Padres. So that was a very high note to end the week on, but we won't touch on it here. Let's get right to it. Sean Green, thank you once again for joining me on the pod. How have you been in these last couple weeks? Yeah, I've been great. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me back. I always enjoy it. This was an eventful couple weeks for the Dodgers. A busy trade deadline and also some sad news of Vin Scully passing away on Tuesday. We'll start with him first because, Sean, I know you had a chance to get to know him a little bit over the years. Um, what were your impressions of Vin and, and what are the memories that you took from your time interacting with him when you were playing for the Dodgers? Yeah, I know when I came over from Toronto, I mean, he was you know, such a legend. And you know, growing up, from the time I was 12 years old in Southern California, I heard him a million times on TV, both for the Dodgers and for, you know, events like the World Series or whatever it may be. So um, I was very familiar when I came over. First time you meet him, you're kind of, I think, a little bit in awe because he has such a, you know, a big presence in the hearts of Dodger fans. And, and uh, you know, once, once I got to know him, he traveled with the team and, um, did a number of interviews with him. Um, he's you know just a just such a, a prince of a man, a total gentleman, and and always um, asking about how my wife and family, parents. And he's just he's that type of guy. How rare is that among broadcasters? Because I, I know that you played for a number of teams in your career. You would have had an opportunity to get to know home broadcasters, maybe visiting broadcasters too. But I, I'm the sense that I always got is that there was an awareness among players uh, that Vin Scully kind of transcended baseball, that he was this institution, and, and that that was rare within the sport. Yeah, that's definitely rare. I mean, there's not a ton of of personalities that aren't in uniform that um, have that type of transcendence. You know that that a guy like like Vin um, has and had, you know, had and has. He's still, he'll always have that um, that type of presence within baseball, even you know, now that he's he's passed. I and mean, he's just he's an icon. And um, and to have someone like that that doesn't have a big ego and and just genuinely cares about you know the people throughout the organization and throughout baseball is you know it, it's a pretty special thing. I, I'm not sure how much you had uh, an opportunity to listen to his calls of games over the years, but you know one thing that I wrote about um, this week for the Daily News was just how his personality and, like you said, just the fact that he was the prince of a man really did come through on the broadcast, and that he's the same guy on the air as he is off the air. Was that your impression as well? For sure, yeah. I mean, he... You know, when he tells a story, it's always bizarre to me when you get to know voices of, you know, that you hear, whether it's actors or um, you know, broadcasters or whatever, and you hear them in, in real life and they, they sound the same. It's just always a bizarre um, conversation 
to, to think that. But that's, he talks in the same way. He talked in the same way. He told stories in the same way. And, um, that was just him. You know, he, I think that's what made him so special is he felt like everyone's, you know, relative. I think, you know, in the later years, he felt like all of our grandfather and, you know, and going back 30, 40 years, I'm sure he felt like everybody's brother or cousin and, and, you know, he was just having, he was just very, he was just a conversation focused person and told great stories and um, always knew the right things to say at, at the right time. It was the perfect match of a person and a personality and a profession um, is, is kind of the best way to describe it. I, I don't know if we'll ever see a better one. And fortunately, every time anybody, player, fan, anybody pulls up to Dodger Stadium, they'll, they'll see it's at 1000 Vince Scully Avenue. And he'll always have that, which I think is super cool. Um, that is cool. We had a very busy trade deadline. I will spare you the the blow by blow of of recapping each and every one because uh, the baseball landscape changed quite a bit just in terms of the number of players changing teams. But Sean, what I did want to ask you about is something that I think gets overlooked, which is that it's not easy for a player to get traded in the middle of the season. Uh, particularly toward the end of a season. Now, you, if I'm not mistaken, Sean, you were traded during the waiver period one year when there were actually two trade deadlines, which was even later in the season uh, than this year, which is uh, had a deadline of August 2nd. Yeah, I got traded um, in 2006 from Arizona to the Mets. And, you know, I had a partial no trade clause at, at that point. So I, it wasn't a, there was no shock to, to to me, I, I knew what was going on, and I, I had to decide whether or not I wanted to accept the trade. And you know, at that time, you know, I, I had left LA, which you know, reluctantly, after the 2004 season, and went to Arizona. And then, you know, after playing there for close to two years, I enjoyed it, but I was, I was anxious to get back in, into the fire of a pennant race and of a big market and all that. And um, when New York came calling, I think uh, Cliff Floyd was having some some kind of on and off injuries, and so they they wanted to, to have a, a a little support in in the outfield. Um, and I had a lot of friends, a lot of guys that I played for a long time with that were on the Mets. Guys like Carl Stuckado, who I had played eight years with in the Blue Jays organization. I was close with him. Um, Paul Laduca um, from the Dodgers, Guillermo Mota from the Dodgers, Dwyer Sanchez. The Dodgers, Chris Woodward from the Blue Jays. So it's just like on and on. All these former teammates were there, and a great group of guys. And the team was in first place. So for me, it was kind of a no-brainer. To, you know, even though I had a you know a one-year-old and a three-year-old at the time, um, you know, my, my wife and I were kind of excited with the, the opportunity to go somewhere that was in you know best team in the National League at that point and play in New York and get to live there for a season and, and a half. Sounded like a lot of fun. So we did it. Now, did you have any certainty that you would be back the following season, I guess 2007 with the Mets? Yeah, I, I definitely knew I was going to be back. I had an option, too, um, and I, I had planned kind of on retiring, and, and you know, my numbers weren't to a point where they would accept the option as it, as it were with, with the amount I was, I was going to make the next year. Um, I could have probably, you know, forced that and say, hey, I'll, I'll accept the deal if if uh, you guys exercise my option, but I, I was I was kind of ready just to play 
that last year and a half and, and retire. So I didn't, I didn't press that issue at all. And, and, uh, knew I'd have another season in New York to, to follow that, that short little stint in 2006. Well, I'm sure that was helpful uh, in your situation. I, I was speaking to a player agent uh, just yesterday. He had a client who was traded to a team and another who was traded from the same team. And he was just trying to make arrangements to help these guys get settled. And it would have been great if player A just could have moved into the apartment of player B, but then player A was making so much more money that player B didn't want to take over the lease because it was too expensive. And even in the situation of players who don't have families or, or wives at home, I can just imagine that gets pretty stressful, especially if you're in the position where you are strictly a rental player who might not be in that city beyond a month or two. Yeah, I actually had a kind of a wild story when I got traded to the Mets. So we had, so we had, we bought a place in Arizona. So we, we had a house that we were, you know, I signed a three-year deal, so. We were, you know, I had little babies and stuff, so we wanted to kind of settle in. And and then I got traded, and one of my teammates, you know, stayed there for the remainder of that season. Yeah, he was, you know, kind of looking for a place. And so anyway, so he stayed in that, my place in Arizona. And then I, I got this care package from, you know, the comedian Richard Lewis, who's a big, huge Mets fan. And so he sends me this care package with all these Curb Your Enthusiasm DVDs and other things, and I was a big fan of Curb Your Enthusiasm, and I still am. And so I get this stuff, and I send he has his email in there. They start response to, hey, thanks for the care package. Let me know if you have any good suggestions where I should live in New York. And then he just, like, jumps on it. He's like, oh, let me e-. – so he's emailing all these comedians, like, you know, all these New York-based comedians that are Mets fans, like Seinfeld and Billy Crystal oh, wow. and all these people. And, and it's just kind of bizarre, but, um, you know, it never – I ended up moving into place, but, um, yeah, they were, they were kind of helped me a lot along the way. So, Sean, Richard Lewis is your concierge. Did you guys become best friends after that, or how did that how did that play out? <laughs> yeah, no, we so we exchanged a bunch of emails, and as I said, it was you know there was all these like different comedians that were on the thread, and we ended up finding something I think on our own because it was you know no one had you know an easy place. It's it's kind of harder than you would think to find a place in the city for, you know, a couple months, um, which is what we were trying to get, you know, through the end of the season. Um, but no, I, I did stay in touch with him. He's, he's a great guy and, and a, a huge uh, Mets fan. So, um, yeah, I had a couple meals with him and, and, uh, yeah, and he's, he's a, he's a great guy. So I, it, it was, I made a friend out of it as well as, uh, you know, enjoyed my time playing in New York. And here we are almost 20 years later and you, you've, Still got some DVDs you can fire up anytime, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, I've seen every episode multiple times, and my girls love it as well. Um, so we do watch that. But um, yeah, the DVDs—I don't even know. I didn't. I didn't know what, what, what I do with DVDs at this point. Use them, I guess, to put my uh, my drinks on top of. It's, it's about all they're good for. There you go. Uh, I'm sure I'll find them at the Goodwill someday. That's where they always seem to. Be. <laughs> That's right. Um, well, I'm glad to know you're raising your girls right. Curb is a great show. Um, I want to end this, though, Sean, with uh, something a little bit more uh, Dodger-centric, which is that the Dodgers were in a somewhat unique... Well, by definition, the Dodgers were in a unique position in that they have the best record in baseball at the trade deadline. And when you look at some of the moves that they made to upgrade the team in the offseason, 
Obviously, signing Freddie Freeman was the big one, but Tyler Anderson has played a major role on the team as well. Mookie Betts having him for a full season, having Trey Turner back. In addition to all the players that the Dodgers had in their core, it's really not too surprising. It's it's not a fluke that the Dodgers have this record. And when the general manager says that he doesn't really see a need to make a big move, um, you, you tend to buy it. My question to you, Sean, though, is is for the players in the room, is is it really that easy to just look around at the talent in the room, to see your record, to see your place in the standings, and say, okay, well, it's okay that we didn't go out and get the best player available at the deadline. Um, we're we're still excited. Here we go. Or do you do you always want to get that guy? Yeah, I mean, I think the Dodgers are in such a unique position, and not just this year, but really for the last, you know, pretty much a decade, where as a player, you know that that the front office, the ownership, the coaching staff, like everyone is doing all they can to put the best product on the field. And um, I don't think there's, they've never been left in a place to say, oh, we could have won if we'd have just gone out and made X move or Y move. So I don't, I don't think um, that's a thought. It's almost probably comical when, you know, a new player shows up at the deadline like last year when, when Trey Turner and, and Max Scherzer show up. Um, it's just, it's almost kind of a joke. I think it's like, wow, these two guys. Um, and at this point, you know, to go out and get, Juan Soto or, you know, some of these big names that, that move teams. Um, I, I just think the costs have been way too high. And, you know, you, you forget, it's easy to forget that, you know, a few years ago it would have been Will Smith or, um, you know, some of these other, you know, Walker Bueller going back five or six years. Like those, are, those are the names that would have gone to other teams. So do you really want to give those players up for next year or the year after and the following year um, to – try to improve a team that's already the best the best team in baseball and I, I just think it's it's just too costly and um, you know I think on the flip side it's it's unfortunate that a team like you know in your division and in your league and division all that that has gotten much better so a lot of times I remember in Toronto Pat Gillick traded for Ricky Henderson in 93 and the team ended up going, going on to win the World Series because they were worried Ricky was going to end up um, I can't remember if it was the Yankees or one of the other teams that they were worried about was really close to getting a deal to get Ricky. And so the Blue Jays you know, snatched him up and um, it ended up working out. But sometimes it's it's a little bit of a defense move. So some of the teams you're worried about don't end up with those players. So I think, you know, San Diego's definitely gotten a lot scarier and it's going to be interesting to see what happens, you know, in the remaining series this year, including this weekend and then in the postseason. But, um, I think when you look at the Dodgers team, it's just not worth giving up the talented young players that they have. A lot of fans hopefully agree with you, Sean. You can look at the standings, read the writing on the wall, and see that the only team that was really desperate here to make a move was the team in San Diego. And you don't want to have to be in a position of making a desperate move. And Andrew Friedman pretty much said as much in his comments to us uh, in the media immediately after the deadline. Yeah, and I think it's I mean, the Padres... Our, their attitude is, look, we're going to try to put the best team we can together for October. And they've done a great job of it, and now those guys need to perform. They need to stay healthy. I mean, I, I actually think the best move 
that they made was was getting Josh Hader. And that's it. Always comes down to the pitching, and um, if they get Tatis back healthy, then that's a really scary lineup. I mean, it's probably the scariest lineup in maybe in baseball. You know, there's you've got the Yankees with the big power guys, but you know, San Diego all of a sudden has a bunch of guys that get on base, hit for average, you know, hit home runs. They can run, and you know, so it's a, it's a pretty dynamic lineup. And the Dodgers have a great lineup too. So I, I think at the end of the day, it's going to come down to to really the pitching, and, and that's why I think Hater at the back end is was the move that is kind of getting overlooked because of the big bats that that, that they've added. That's a good point, and, and the Dodgers have had some questions about the ninth inning themselves this year. Uh, Craig Kimbrell hasn't been the Craig Kimbrell that he was at his peak, but I, I think that if you're going to compare lineup power, it's worth noting here that Mookie Betts, Trey Turner, and Freddie Freeman, who are the Dodgers' big guys, have been healthy all year, and it's not entirely clear which version of Fernando Tatis Jr. the Padres are going to get if and when he returns from the injured list. Um, if he is the player that we've seen in years past, power, the speed, uh, all the components that you could hope for from a superstar, then I think that's going to be a great rivalry to watch down the stretch. Without a doubt. And I, 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 it'd be hard to pick a better three guys in your lineup than the ones you just named. I mean, I think, you know, Trey is, and Mookie, they're both, they do it. They do everything. They're super dynamic. You know, run, hit for, hit for power, hit for average, and, and Freddie's just a you know just a rock in the in the middle of that lineup as well. Um, so I think you know that those are the kind of players that I think are are scary in the postseason. Are the guys that you know hit for average, get on base, do all the little things, and that's you know I think that's what's made San Diego a little scarier is because they've added you know more of that into the lineup, especially when they get to Tease back. But as you said, who knows, you know, where he's at. I think that's something with the Yankees that's a little bit a little bit more questionable, you know, if, if they end up in the World Series against the Dodgers. Um, is you know, a lot of times the big power teams that rely on the home run, it's kinda of all or nothing and when they face good pitching they don't hit the ball in the ballpark and they struggle to score runs. So I think the lineups that if, that I would be the most scared playing against right now would probably still be the Dodgers number one, but the Padres would be a close second. So I think it's it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be an exciting, uh, you know, remainder of this season and postseason. And, you know, I, I think Dodger fans should actually, should be kind of thrilled that this division's gotten that much more exciting because it just makes for great baseball. Well, I think that's a great note to end on, Sean. Thanks as always for hopping on. Uh, really enjoy your insights. All right, JP. You have a good one. All right. Thanks as always to Sean Green for hopping on the pod. be back again next week plenty more to talk about talk to you then For listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube.